Welcome everyone to The Lighthouse, a podcast series dedicated to providing advanced financial planning and wellness insights to the clients and families we serve. My name is Jack Butler, and my business partner, John Stanford, and I are financial advisors with the Hatteras Wealth Management Group at UBS, located at 6100 Fairview Road office in Charlotte, North Carolina. Our guest today is Mike Gord, an investment associate with the asset allocation team within UBS. Mike's going to join us today to talk about cryptocurrencies and all the ins and outs of the crypto world and the digital ledger and digital assets. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me, Jack. Well, we're looking forward to your conversation here, Mike. And really, I thought what we start off by talking about is just your background within the Chief Investment Office of UBS. Could you just share with us your story and your background and how it led you to be the de facto, quote unquote, expert within the firm regarding cryptocurrency? Sure, happy to. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to thank you again for the opportunity to come here and speak with you on the, on the podcast. Really excited to join you and very much looking forward to the conversation. So with that, my professional career started when I joined UBS right out of undergraduate and shortly thereafter joined our chief investment office. And the role that I took in the chief investment office was more of a general markets and portfolio strategy position, but it put me in front of markets and and in the room with some of the smartest folks at the firm. Now, until recently, there hasn't been much focus at our firm or other competing firms as well on the digital asset space, but it was a topic that I had always been interested in since learning about it back in uh, 2016. Now, the lack of you know, an institutional focus wasn't necessarily a, a major obstacle. In fact, in my opinion, it, it might have been preferable because what that allowed me to do was make investments, uh, both good and very, very bad. It means that I got to do things like set up my own hardware wallets. I got to participate in initial coin offerings that were all the rage five or so years ago. And I also got the lovely experience of falling victim to at least one fraudulent scheme, as what I was trying to do was really ingrain myself into the digital asset community and really learn by participating. Now, I mentioned all this, Jack, because when it comes to a novel technology like blockchain and cryptocurrencies, I really, really believe that the best way to learn is by experience. And so that's really what I had sought out to do, experience as much as I could. Now, that all translated really well into my role here at UBS, because now I'm able to really meaningfully connect with clients who are experiencing some of those same struggles that I had or have some of the same questions that I've explored over the years. And for me, the act of physically interacting with the different players in the space, whether it's a wallet, an exchange, a smart contract, that's all proven to be a valuable experience to me to help newcomers explore the space in in a safe and thoughtful manner. So when we hear terms like the digital asset space and hardware wallets and initial coin offerings, you know, it's like something out of like a sci-fi movie. It seems like it it almost, you know, kind of of seems very um, esoteric, if you will. So let's just start off by talking about distributed ledger technology. And can you just describe what this technology is in a very general sense and how it can improve transactional efficiencies or even just broaden access to the financial system and just an overview perspective. 
Yeah, sure. You know, before I jump into it, let me just give a quick plug for uh, our flagship report from our chief investment office. Uh, it's the flagship piece that we published on the topic, which is where I'm pulling many of these views that we're discussing today and what I would steer listeners towards uh, if they do want to learn more and explore this topic further. That report's titled Distributed Ledgers and Digital Assets. And Jack, I believe that you, you are able to help any of your listeners here access the publication if they are so interested. So let's start off with the technology. It's less than straightforward, let's put it that way. Simply put, distributed ledger technology is a new type of database, and it combines a few different technological developments. And we think it's most helpful to consider each of those underlying foundational technologies in isolation before thinking of them together. And those technologies are a decentralized distributed network, consensus algorithms, and cryptography. Lots of jargon, I know. Unfortunately, there's no way around it, but let's talk through each one of these. So on decentralization, I think it's easiest to consider an example of the most successful decentralized network ever, which is the modern day internet. In this network architecture is what it is. Any individual computer in the crypto sphere, these are typically referred to as a node in the network. In the internet network, any of these individual computers or nodes can interact with any other node on the network without having to rely on a centralized entity or authority. Now, what this allows is for scalability, efficiency, and reliability, some of the attributes of today's modern internet. Now, let's turn to the, the next technology, consensus algorithms. Now, these are really important because one of the drawbacks of that decentralization we just discussed is how do each of the individual nodes, computers, people in the network agree on one view of the world? So there's no centralized entity, so you need something called a consensus algorithm to avoid any negative outcomes like a conflict or accuracy of a database entry. And so a consensus algorithm, it exists to ensure that all of the nodes in the network agree on the correct state of that network, or other times referred to as the ledger, the ledger of transactions on the network. Now, some of the most well-known consensus algorithms in the digital asset space are proof of work and proof of stake. There are many others and, and new ones are being developed, but those are the two best known. Now, the third technology that's critical to the functioning of a distributed ledger is cryptography. And this is something that can get really technical really fast, so I'll try to keep it high level. But cryptography provides the security for the network so that participants on the network know that when they see something on the ledger, this distributed ledger, or they see a pool of, of transactions, that those transactions are actually as they appear. And the reason that they have that confidence is because the input raw data gets put through something that's called a hashing function. That's, that's not important. But what that, what that function does is it creates an output of data, which has two qualities. One of those qualities is called deterministic, and the other one is irreversible. Now, what that means is that the same input value will always produce the same output value. That's deterministic. So it's impossible to derive the input value from the output because it's irreversible. 
So those are the two critical factors of cryptography as it relates to distributed ledger technology. And now those factors contribute to the unchangeability or what we call the immutability of blockchains and distributed databases because each new block of data that's added to the chain has to include that unique hash that's associated with the previous block. So if the previous block had been altered, the associated hash output is also altered, again, because of that uh, deterministic quality. And the new block that has the old hash value is rejected. And so that's how everybody agrees. Now, additionally, with, with a public key cryptography, it allows users to propose transactions or changes to the network. And so this is how it all works. Now, users or nodes are able to present their key alongside a signature that only they can generate because they have that private key and they're, only, they're the only ones that are able to generate it because of those deterministic and irreversible qualities. So I, I know that that is really quick and I will admit non-comprehensive overview of some of the key technologies that underpin this. But to the second part of your question, and probably the more important is what are the benefits of using a system like this in terms of economic growth or broadening of financial inclusion? So Mike, so to my simplistic ability to understand all of this, it seems like that there is an ecosystem to this whole crypto and digital asset world. And what you just described is that the decentralization component of it is essentially really just the, the whole ecosystem to be able to operate together, kind of from each individual or institution that uses these assets to be able to interchange them together, if I'm not if I'm understanding that correctly. And then really the, the algorithms are essentially just the the mechanism to kind of police it and to keep it moving smoothly and to have it all kind of work seamlessly together. And then the, the cryptography component of it is really more or less around the security aspect of it, where you can keep track of certain transactions that take place. Um, so that there's some degree of accounting for things that are transferred, bought, sold, so on and so forth. Right. So, is that kind of a general layman's term summary of, of how the whole ecosystem works when it comes to digital assets? Yeah, I, I think that that's a, a good overview. I'd say, you know, cryptography, like you, like you mentioned, provides the security layer. The consensus algorithms that I mentioned, you have to think about this is a network that has hundreds of thousands of individuals kind of running their own, their own version of the network. And that network is updated in real time constantly and they need to get everybody to agree on what their network looks like constantly. And so this is the way that they do it. Uh, I, again, okay. it is technical, but yeah. So let's get into then to the, the benefits, as you were mentioning, the benefits of using a system like this in terms of it's essential for economic growth and just broadening financial inclusion, maybe for those who are unbanked and whatnot around the world. If you can just you know kind of shed some light on that. I think that'd be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, on the economic component, this technology, it really has potential to lower transaction costs and increase the speed and improve transparency of those transactions. I like to think of this with real world use cases. So something like trade finance services, the application of a blockchain technology could allow a trade finance services or, or operators in the space to use smart contracts to do something like 
automatically trigger uh, a contingency payment. And what this can do is lower costs and, and really improve efficiencies anywhere that this replaces a manual process. Uh, and there are a lot of manual processes in, again, this is just an example, but in trade finance services, you know, smaller businesses or businesses that operate in, in emerging markets, the bulk of trade finance transactions are entirely on paper still. So it's it's a ripe opportunity, and that's that's just one of many examples. You know, others could be, you know, post trade settlement services. You know, that's something that all U.S. investors have uh, have intimately experienced. You know, if we had a distributed ledger technology based system, it would come with near immediate settlement and complete transparency. So not only would your stock trade no longer need t plus two days to settle but you'd also have full transparency into who the counterparty of your trade was. And so it doesn't really take you know, that much more thinking to see how those benefits could expand to, to other services like custody, lending, collateral management, and, and much more. Now, beyond those immediately obvious improvements and efficiencies that this technology can facilitate, there are, like you mentioned, positive societal impacts that it can help with as well, like broadening access for those who are unbanked. So anybody, regardless of net worth or income, can create a wallet address without any prerequisites. So you don't need a bank or any other traditional financial operator to open and maintain an account on your behalf. And depending on the specifics of your transaction, sending value over a public distributed ledger or blockchain it could be significantly cheaper than via a bank. And this is especially the case for international payments, which can become prohibitively expensive. Uh, and this, again, is without mentioning the speed and transparency of those transactions. And so what we're seeing today is that this technology is really able to remove barriers to access for those that aren't already a part of that financial system today. And I'll offer too, Mike, that as an example, when it comes to the time in which it takes to transfer assets or for trades to settle on our end. You know, we can fly a plane full of money to Europe faster than we can send it electronically. And then obviously, so in theory, this technology would allow you to do that instantaneously, also at a fraction of the cost. And then really that technology then can be used for all forms of money being exchanged and, and changed hands, right? Whether it's for businesses and like you said, or for people who you know, don't live anywhere near a bank, as an example, you know, they, they can in theory then send money to other people or service providers that they would, they would you know, need to operate with, or, or they could even do so internationally, just much more efficiently and, yeah. and in theory securely. So if, if, is that kind of a, a, an application that you can see that can be used with this technology? Yeah, absolutely. And, and to that, to your point there, one of the largest and earliest use cases of this technology that we saw, what, uh, at least in the U.S., was work, uh, immigrant workers sending remittances back to their families uh, you know, overseas. And it, it's taken a huge chunk out of the traditional remittances business here in the U.S. because these folks are able to send it, like you said, with very, very low transaction costs and their relatives are able to access that value nearly instantaneously. Yeah, that's fascinating. So what industries could we see being disrupted using this technology? And then how do we think this could impact global GDP in the long run? 
Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of industries that could be disrupted pretty meaningfully uh, with this technology, but we think that financial services is potentially the most prone to disruption. Uh, you know, there's going to be new threats from these emerging ecosystem participants, these, these firms that were born and grew in the digital asset and distributed ledger technology-based system. But we also see opportunities for incumbent technology, or excuse me, incumbent financial services firms to participate. Now, I mentioned a few of the areas of financial services that are already being disrupted, uh, but again, worth highlighting, you know, payments, syndication, private placement, trade finance, others. You know, these are all uh, specific services that financial services firms provide that are fairly easily disrupted with this technology. But, you know, that, with all of that said, incumbents have you know, significant scale and expertise in these areas. And so it's our opinion that in many of these cases, the existing players will either partner or integrate technology and leverage their existing client base to keep these emerging challengers at bay. But stepping back to the larger picture, there's a whole range of other applications to this technology. And specifically, we see smart contracts as a means for incumbents to create really innovative products that aren't actually feasible within traditional financial infrastructure. Healthcare, public services, art, luxury goods, these are just a few of the industries we're already seeing major disruptions taking place. Uh, you know, estimates will vary drastically given how new the technology is, but PwC, PricewaterhouseCooper, they anticipate that blockchain technology could add over one and three quarter trillion dollars to global GDP by 2030. So, you know, definitely a net positive uh, for those firms that are able to use and leverage this technology to, to meaningfully reduce costs, improve revenues, what have you. So you, you've done a great job of summarizing the blockchain technology and how that could be used. And, and so I think that kind of tails into the next aspect of our conversation, which is really about cryptocurrencies, because that's really kind of the, the headline factor that people you know, get caught up in, especially, you know, you hear these stories of people making and then losing a lot of money very quickly overnight into some of these um, you know, cryptocurrencies. So really, while they both operate kind of in the same sphere, they're, they're two kind of very different forms of technology that are, are being adopted here recently. So just give us your thoughts on the whole cryptocurrency ecosystem. From my understanding, there are thousands of different coins out there, Bitcoin being the, the most notable one, but there, there are thousands of other ones um, out there. So what do, you, what, do you make of, what do you make of it all? And, and what are some of the key risks that potential investors should be aware of when it comes to cryptocurrencies? Yes, there are quite a number. Last estimation, something like 20,000 different coins, tokens, or whatever you want to call it. You know, I'm referencing there the latest numbers from one of the most notable or most commonly used public sources, which is CoinMarketCap. In my opinion, in our opinion, most of those are going to end up pretty worthless, similarly to the shaking out of internet companies that we saw after the dot-com bubble. Now, on the other side, will there be just one public blockchain that, that's broadly used and attracts the bulk of act activity? Unlikely, in my opinion. Five, maybe, maybe more. But we're still really early innings here, so it's hard to make those broad kind of longer-term predictions. What I will say is that I think it's very likely that we end up in a sort of uh, multi-chain future 
And what I mean by that is there are going to be different blockchains or different versions of this distributed ledger technology that have their own specific use cases. And there will be some level of interoperability between those chains uh, because, again, they each have those specialized focus areas. Now, on the risk side of things, we've got a lot more clarity on issues that need to be resolved uh, or, or still solved at all. And, and so when looking at the risks of these, this technology and, and these crypto assets, uh, we break it into four categories. The first one I would define as legal and regulatory risk. This includes things such as the actual legality of any digital asset. And that legality actually varies dramatically across political regimes and across countries. Other risks that in this space are know your client, anti-money laundering issues. You know, this is a pseudo-anonymous technology. So these, these, these present very thorny and complex issues. Things like regulatory oversight and jurisdiction for uh, how do you establish jurisdiction for something that is inherently global and without borders, or even taxation considerations. So lots of these legal and regulatory risks still exist and still need a lot more clarity on. The next set of risks I, I describe as kind of technological or operational, things like institutional custody of digital assets. What's the best practice for that look like? Or what I mentioned before, and which many consider a benefit of the blockchain, irreversibility, that can be a risk, especially for those who are just making their initial their initial forays into the ecosystem. You can't reverse a transaction. That's not how it works. But then there are also risks of interacting with the blockchain itself. You, know, you could unknowingly be interacting with malicious code, or as we witnessed back in the spring, even poorly optimized code. Even if it's not broken or malicious, it can basically take an entire blockchain out of commission. You know, these are issues that are just really emblematic of how much more growing up the technology has to do uh, before it's ready to compete at scale with any of the traditional finance players. Now, the third set of risk factors we broadly define as market risk, things like asset valuation, with all of the different valuation models being thrown around in the digital asset space. The only agreement that I've heard of is that there isn't a well-defined or agreed-on approach. So then you end up in a situation where you have the risk of over or underpaying for a digital asset relative to its fair value. You don't know what fair value is, so you're just in the dark as an investor. You know, another market risk factor is the volatility. I don't need to say any more than this stuff is really volatile. We have things like illiquidity. If you're trying to trade a digital asset, where are you going to put your trade? What, what exchange? What market maker? What's the liquidity profile look like? Will the market move against you? Another risk here is ownership concentration. Again, this is a pseudo-anonymous network. So how can I confirm that maybe the top 10 holders of a token, how can I confirm that those aren't actually owned by the same person? You know, it's really hard to do something like that. Uh, and then, you know, we, have, we always have, like with all markets, the risk of new entrants, and that's especially the case within digital assets. You know, this is an ecosystem community that prides itself on being transparent with open source and disrupting the disruptors. So lots, lots of market risk factors. And, and lastly, is reputational. 
consider UBS, for example, offering client services in this space for whatever reasons. Let's say those investments turned out poorly. That's not a great look for us as, as you know, a financial services firm. And another reputational risk we have to be aware of in this space is digital assets can be used as a means of illicit finance and in support of criminal activities. It's worth mentioning in aggregate, the majority of criminal activities, they still use you know, actual physical dollar bills, but, but you know, things like ransomware attacks, they nearly universally accept digital assets, mostly Bitcoin, as a ransom payment. You know, that is a real reputational risk that we have to consider. You know, again, <laughs> and one more risk that's really important that we haven't touched on yet is ESG risk. You know, there's a lot of research that's done into the amounts of energy that are required to sustain one of these uh, these consensus mechanisms, one of those algorithm consensuses. And as a firm, we think you know, we are very ESG focused and we believe in an increasingly ESG centric future. So we see any use case of these uh, really energy intense blockchains or digital ledgers that has its own reputational risks associated with it. And, you know, would generally prefer to be interacting with, with a solution that has a better sustainability profile. So lots of risks out there, Jack. Definitely. That definitely seems to be the case. And, and you've, got, you've done a good job summarizing those, those main risk factors as they pertain to cryptocurrencies. But I guess just generally speaking, if I'm in the audience learning about this for the first time, it would seem to me that the blockchain technology will, will likely be here to stay and there will be improvements to it, enhancement to it in the years to come. Um, if for another reason, just for the efficiency components of it, the cost savings components of it, as we move money around uh, more efficiently, um, that, that seems to be, you know, here to stay. But just generally speaking, when it comes to cryptocurrencies, I guess one question that comes to mind is really at what point, if ever, would we be in a situation where people are paying for haircuts and gas and food at the grocery store with cryptocurrencies? It seems unfathomable that we would be using that as our means of buying goods and services, right? When, as you mentioned, all the with all the risk associated with them and also the volatility associated with, with it as well. I, I don't think anybody wants to go to the grocery store with a hundred or on a value basis, a hundred dollars of cryptocurrency to, to go grocery shopping. And then by the time they go to check out, it's fallen, that value has fallen 10, 20%. How do you see that all kind of coming into the daily lives of, of the audience who may be listening? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. And to get the nail on the head, but nobody is going to be, you know, grocery shopping with their Bitcoin. They're not going to be using it for things like that. I think where, you know, and this again, uncertain future, really uncertain outlook here. If we got to a point where folks were paying for everyday goods and services using some type of digital asset, I think what you, you may not even fully be aware of it. In, and what I mean by that is, you know, for, for example, myself, I'm a New Yorker. I, I live in the city. I go and take the subway. I don't have a Metro card anymore because I just pay with my phone. I tap, it's called tap and go. I tap my phone and I pay with my credit card on there. In very much the same way, we could see you know, a digital asset, something called a stable coin. Let's say you have a debit of $100 
and it's just stable at $100, it's, it's backed by some central institution, maybe it's the Federal Reserve, who knows? And so I think what I'm getting at is you're going to end up using this stuff without even fully realizing it. That is, again, way off in the future. The future is nowhere near written in stone. Uh, and I think that if you were to see that being used for everyday purchases, that's how it would look. You know, it would be kind of sneaky. You wouldn't fully realize it. Um, but again, very uncertain. I'm not holding my breath for that. So, Mike, I know you talked earlier about the implications of cryptocurrency and, and, and digital assets in, from an ESG perspective, you know, with, you know, in terms of how much energy it, it requires to mine for cryptocurrencies. So can you just explain generally to the audience how mining for, for digital assets works? And then what are the energy requirements in order to, to do that? And then how, how can that improve over time in your, in your view? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess the best way to, so you mentioned what it's called proof of work. And this is what the Bitcoin network uses. It's what the Ethereum network uses. And what it means is that these folks around the world who are providing the security and maintaining the network, they are in essence, wasting electricity, huge, huge amounts of electricity. But what it does is it makes sure that nobody else that wants to attack the network is able to, because that person who wanted to attack it would have to use even more electricity. And so it's, it's, they provide security by wasting a valuable resource. And that is what proof of work is. Now, obviously wasting something like electricity is terrible when thought of through an ESG lens uh, and the scale of it is really massive. It's on par with small nations, you know, it's really, it's, it's really tough. The other aspect of it is these miners will always go to where the cheapest power is. And that from what we've seen is really almost always fossil fuel based. Uh, so it's, it's dirty energy. It's like, it's electricity wasting. Um, it's, it's really bad. And then the other aspect of this ESG consideration uh, is something that we call e-waste which is you know, there's a lot of physical computer equipment that's needed to actually be like a Bitcoin miner and it becomes obsolete in a year and a half. So just like that electricity draw, there's huge amounts of e-waste that are generated, again, on par with small nations. So you know, from a sustainability landscape, proof of work that's wasting electricity, not great. You know, that said, proof of work is not the only way that these blockchains run. Uh, there are other what we call consensus protocols like proof of stake. Uh, this is something that the Ethereum blockchain, for example, is hoping to switch to next month. Uh, rather than burning electricity, the folks that are maintaining the network are basically posting their cryptocurrency uh, in order to provide that, that same kind of value in the network. So that, that's, what I'll, that's what I'll leave that. That's certainly interesting. And then also just kind of getting back to a comment you made earlier, Mike, about you know, the, the unlikeliness that we're going to be using cryptocurrencies for everyday goods, goods and services in, in really at any point in the near future, right? I think actually the first, if I'm not mistaken, the first transaction using a Bitcoin was for a pizza 
I think I, I read that somewhere where you know it was like 12 years ago someone used a you know, Bitcoin to you know buy a pizza and, and had they held on to it right it'd be worth you know mm-hmm. millions times more more than that um, at that point um, so it doesn't really seem like that will be easy cryptocurrencies for for you know, purchasing goods and services anytime soon so how do you think about it in the context of, of a portfolio and, and as an investor I know that from a compliance standpoint we'd be very careful because you're not able we can't recommend cryptocurrencies to clients or anything like that but for the longest time everything that i saw and heard was that it was a great diversifier within a client's overall uh portfolio obviously couldn't invest in here right for all the reasons you just stated um and that it would be uncorrelated to the market and it would be a good you know un- uncorrelated asset that could grow over time but if anything we've seen this year it, it kind of operates similar to kind of the growth oriented sector of the market. So you know, going forward, I know that you know, in some of your comments here, you talked about how valuation models in terms of how we value uh, investment opportunities, whether it's dividend discount models or cash flow models, they're not really applicable to this since it's so new. So how do you even fit this in going forward? And is it really just a matter of kind of almost kind of like gambling money for, for some clients where, yeah, it could go up, you know, significantly, but it could also go to zero pretty quickly too. I mean, so how do you how do you factor all that in when when you're trying to evaluate where it makes sense for us from a portfolio perspective? Yeah, you uh, you, you almost stole all my thunder there. You really hit the nail on the head. Um, like, I was like looking said, for the I was looking for the answers. You know, I, those are just <laughs> those are just the great questions that I feel like everyone's like wondering or whatever. So well, you know, if you can you can answer that. I think that that's uh, we probably the first one in the industry who could uh, hit the nail on the head for that one. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. It's nobody really knows. Like you said, valuation models, no real good way to figure out what this stuff is worth, what it should be worth, you know, what quote unquote fair value looks like. You know, also to your point, the diversification aspect, you know, this is something that we've heard for a long time um, and we would push back on it. Some cryptocurrencies historically have had low correlations, but more and more recently that correlation has increased specifically with some of the higher beta parts of the stock market, like your your low earnings uh, tech stocks, for instance. I think some aspect of that is just that it's it's an easily accessible market that trades 24 hours a day, and it's very, very volatile. So there's a lot of opportunity for some big institutional players that, that like to trade things like volatility. And, and really, they're able to basically make a lot of money trading it just like another risk asset. But again, diversification, you know, I think of diversification as having the most value when markets are down. So looking at today, you know, we had kind of the worst first half, you know, first half of a calendar year uh, for a diversified stock bond investor in 50 years. Where's crypto? Down 50% this year, 70% from the record highs just, just last year. So when markets are bleeding, crypto isn't acting as that kind of you know, diversifying asset and protecting your, your portfolio as some of the proponents claim. And, and you know, as a result of that, you know, we really don't think that you know, clients should be putting any more than a couple percent maybe of their portfolio into this stuff. Any, nothing more than they're willing to lose, like you said snap your fingers could go to zero 
because yeah, we also have to be mindful of the the euphoria surrounding the whole crypto space and we've all heard anecdotes over the past few years about the you know someone's neighbor or someone's kid who stumbled into a cryptocurrency and it went up significantly and you heard all the, these stories about these crypto millionaires and then when you go to hear people explain it they they have really they're un unable to do so very well at least right and so it kind of had this bubble mania to it. And to your point earlier, the fact that there's 20,000 cryptocurrencies and people were you know, buying some of these that, you know, were in theory created out of, out of a, as a joke in some instances, making a bunch of money. It just, it all, it all had kind of a too good to be true dynamic to it in some, in some cases. Right. And, and you clearly seen a lot of that uh, give back here within the last uh, year or two, as, as you had mentioned. So I guess just for my last question, Mike, you know, what, what it goes kind of goes without saying, but what type of risk tolerance does an investor need to have for investing in crypto? And then really broadly speaking, how can clients get exposure to this space without necessarily having all the volatility associated with it or without having to open up an account somewhere and evaluate what, which, which of the 20,000 cryptocurrencies that they want to, they want to invest in? Like, how can they get exposure to this, this trend that, that you've been discussing for, for the last uh, several minutes here? Yeah. So again, the underlying cryptos themselves, that's one way to get exposure. That's definitely the most volatile way to get exposure. And in our view, it has the lowest uh, risk adjusted reward. You know, you're taking a lot of risk for not a lot of potential reward in our view. Uh, but there are a couple of other good ways to play the space. The one that I like is what we call enablers and platform companies. So think of your uh, your firms that are making semiconductors, the, the guys that are making the actual hardware, the, you know, the actual Bitcoin miners, for instance. As these blockchains keep growing in, in use and, and in number, you know, more people are going to be using this type of technology. And it's just going to require more and more hardware to, to maintain and run these different networks. Uh, you know, other, other players like uh, software companies that are able to really help build the underlying infrastructure, that's a big opportunity. Um, you know, firms that are able to really internalize this tech, that are able to really see some, some cost reductions, you know, things, uh, things in the internet, IT services, kind of consumer services space, they can really offer a bunch of services to their clients that are able to, and they're able to do it at much lower cost than they had traditionally done. Uh, and then the other, the other opportunity is through ecosystem participants. Uh, so, you know, there, there aren't really any pure play distributed ledger companies uh, or something that would be a real investable proxy to this actual technology. But we see a lot of opportunities through the fintech and, and decentralized finance companies. They have the first mover advantage. They are able to easily integrate this kind of separate set of what we call like financial rails. There's the traditional financial rails and there's the digital asset financial rails. So these folks are kind of at the, the bleeding edge of the technology and they're able to really tap in to that second set of rails. But we, we really view investing in those kind of dis, those blockchain based businesses as, as similar to investing in, in tech platforms a decade ago, as they were kind of launching subscription services and really before they reshaped entire business models in the tech sector towards what, what we've seen today. We see that there's tremendous opportunity there. But then again, yes, the third is through 
direct exposure to the coins and tokens themselves. Um, so I'd say in terms of highest risk-adjusted reward to lowest, uh, it's going to be those firms that are making kind of the, the hardware and software components that are going to be powering these networks, then the firms that are able to most easily tap into this, this new technology, and then lastly, the direct exposure. Yeah, I think that direct exposure piece definitely has that uh, buyer beware disclaimer to it, right? You talked about the trade-off of risk reward. Yes, you've seen in some instances where, where some of those cryptocurrencies went up significantly over a short period of time, but to your point earlier, they also fell significantly in a very short period of time as well. And, and there's also, to my point earlier, about kind of euphoric dynamic that, that you see within the crypto uh, ecosystem and investors in the space sometimes too. It is almost reminiscent of prior periods as well, where people get caught up in certain manias. Um, and, and not to say that, for example, housing in the 2000s, right? That, that certainly, you know, there was a, a significant bubble in, in housing. Doesn't mean that housing went away forever, but there was a, a major you know, correction in that market um, after the, the housing market uh, bubble burst in, in 2008 and 2009. You know, dot-com bubble you referenced earlier, right? You can go back to the stock market bubble. You know, we still invest in the stock market today, 100 years later, but there was a huge washout kind of phenomenon that took place you know, nearly 100 years ago. And you can go on and on and on, and it kind of you know, points to the fact that history can often rhyme, even though it doesn't repeat. But I think you've done an excellent job, Mike, in kind of uh, explaining to us on the show today, uh, just in layman's terms, just how this whole ecosystem works and, and, and really for how clients to kind of think about it, since it's something you hear about almost on a daily basis. So um, with that said, Michael, just want to again, uh, thank you for the uh, the time and uh, your participation on our podcast episode today. Of course, Jack. Great, great speaking with you. And we we, we loved having you. And, and I'll just say for the audience, if anybody has any questions following uh, the episode, uh, please feel free to reach out to John and myself, and we can relay those questions to to Mike and his team. Uh, but we uh, look forward to speaking with you all again soon, and I uh, hope uh, everyone has a uh, a great rest of the uh, the summer. Thank you. Disclaimer, neither UBS Financial Services, Inc. nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different material ways are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review client relationship summary provided at ubs.com backslash relationship summary or ask your UBS financial advisor for a copy. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member of FINRA, member SIPC. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only. It does not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, securities, or views stated herein. Any specific securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities that was or will be profitable. This item is approved as is for use with clients and prospects for public distribution, approval date 8-9-2022, expiration 8-31-2023, review code IS-2204479.